Father God, indeed, we have been saved by the blood of Christ, raised up to new life. And may all of our lives, the way that we live and speak and think, be an expression of thanks and thanksgiving to you. And Lord, as we come this morning to to sing together, to pray together, to fellowship together, now Lord, we come to the time to open your word together and we ask you to come and to teach us, to guide us into all truth. And Lord, I pray this morning particularly that for those who are enduring trial, you will bring encouragement, reminders of your goodness your faithfulness, your ability, your sovereignty. And that you can indeed bring good and accomplish good in and through our suffering. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me invite you to take your Bible and open it to the book of Genesis in chapter 37. And if you were with us last week, you know that we started at the end. We uh, went to Genesis chapter 50 and we wanted to lay the foundation of uh, our examination and and our broad examination of the life of Joseph. Uh, We wanted to begin that with the, the reality, with the statement that while his brothers Uh, They meant their action for evil. Joseph brings that reminder, but God meant it for good. And so we want to read the rest of this narrative or the parts that we'll we'll, uh, examine over these now following three weeks through the, the recognition, through the reminder that while the brother's intent was evil, God was indeed at work. God meant these things for good. To give that as a a framework, if you will, of how we're going to engage in this issue, this topic, this idea of our suffering and how that exists under God's sovereignty. And this morning, we're going to particularly look at it in the way that it relates to God's promises, God's promises to us. So we're going to use Genesis chapter 30 as as a launching point to ask a vital question, then we're going to use some other places in the scripture to bring answer uh, to that question. So turn your attention to Genesis chapter 37. And as we read, I want us to be reminded because we have a tendency when we read narrative portions of the Bible, we have a tendency to elevate the people in the narrative. And we don't read and we don't study text like this so that we can know Joseph better, but rather so that we can know God better. Joseph is not the main character of this narrative. He's a character in the narrative, but if all we do is know more about Joseph, we miss everything that we can learn about God, then we've missed the point of the text. God didn't work in Joseph's life so that we can elevate Joseph and look at all the wonderful things that he does or he doesn't do or he engages in or doesn't engage in. The goal of the text is for us to know more about our Heavenly Father. 
to more rightly understand who he is and his nature and his character, to walk more intimately with him. And so as we read this narrative, let's be reminded of of whom we ought to be focused or on whom we ought to be focused. So Genesis chapter 37. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. And these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Point one in the argument against Joseph. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons. Point two. He tattled on them and he was the favorite son. Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons because he was the son of his old age. He made him a very colored tunic. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. I mean, we're four verses in. And already, this is looking bleak for Joseph. He he, he brought back a bad report, so it set them against him. But in general, they hated him because he was their father's favorite. And his father was apparently unashamedly uh, unabashed in his uh, his extravagance in showing that he was the favorite. And they could not... Speak to him on friendly terms. That had to make family dinner very awkward each night. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Now already they can't be in the same room and speak on friendly terms. And they hated him even more. Their their hatred is fanned into more intense flame because of this dream. And he said to them, please listen to the dream which I've had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and and lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you going to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And now he said still another dream and related it to his brothers. At some point, somebody might ask a reasonable question. It's like, why does he feel the need to go ahead and tell them? He's bringing them what eventually will become good information. But have you ever brought somebody good information that wasn't received very well? And lo, he still had another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have still had another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you on the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. 
And then his brothers went to pasture their flock, their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Now are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to them, I will go. Then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and about the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me. And so he sent him away from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And he found a man there, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And, he asked, or, and the man asked him, What are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me, where are they pasturing the flock? And then the man said, they have moved from here. For I heard them say, let's go over to Dothan. And so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And when they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. We read narrative so quickly. Some things happen between verses 17 and 18 and 18 and 19 that take a little bit of time. They're pasturing the flock. And they see from a distance, not just anybody, but they see that coat. Now remember, they already hate him. And then they hated him some more. And then they hated him even more. And then they were jealous of him. And here he comes. Now, remember the last time he checked on them, what happened? Brought back a bad report. And here comes this dreamer. And they begin to plan together, to conspire together. They start brainstorming about how to put him to death. Now then, come and let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say, a wild beast has devoured him. Then let us see what would become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. For Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit that's in the wilderness. He's like, I'm good with the pit idea. Let's just not kill him. To do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands and so restore him to his father. Now, before you think that Reuben is the nice guy of the group, if you back this narrative up a little bit, Reuben has offended his father by taking one of his concubines. So he's already on the outs with his dad. And so he knows that, I'm, I'm implying some from the text here, not that Reuben has any sort of good motivation, but rather if he saves the favorite son from certain death, then maybe he might get it back in good graces with his father. I don't trust Reuben's motives than anybody else in this narrative. So it came about that when Joseph reached his brothers, that they stripped of Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it, and they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay hands on him. For after all, he's our brother. Our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And then some Midianite traders passed by. And so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph up out of the pit. They sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. 
And thus they brought Joseph to Egypt. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. And when he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And when they sent the very colored tunic and, and brought it to their father, he said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether this is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, This is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And so Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son for many days. Then all of his sons and all of his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he, sure, he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. And so his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Interesting how pretty key parts of this narrative just get added in in very short sentences. And thus they took Joseph to Egypt. That's a key transition that happens in this narrative. And so they sold him to Potiphar. Key transition. But in this first part of the narrative of Joseph's life, we see in this context that we have here the introduction of the, the, the players, if you will, that are part of this process of God keeping his covenant promise to his chosen people. Because that's ultimately what is going on here. Remember, who's not the main character of this story? Joseph or anybody else that we read. God is the main character of this narrative. And so we see the, the, the work of God to keep his promise, his covenant promise that he makes to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15. We see this being played out here. So that's the context in which all of this lands. That's the context in which all of this suffering that Joseph endures, that's the context in which it rests. God keeping his covenant promise to Abraham. That he will become a, a father of nations and multitudes and that all the, the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. These are not, not, not disconnected narratives of God's work here, God's work here, God's work here, God's work here, all throughout the scripture. All of these things are connected under God's work. God's redemptive work that actually begins back in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 where the fall, God has created, everything's perfect, has relationship with man and woman, and then the fall happens. And from that point on, the rest of the book is about God's redemptive work to reconcile all things unto himself. That's the context in which we find these kind of narratives. So if we look at it just from this isolated view of, well, this really, these dreams really seem important. This is in the broader context of God keeping his covenant promises to his people. And in this context, we learn these truths about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, brothers. And in this work, in the midst of suffering, 
or what will come to be suffering, God gave dreams to Joseph. He could have spoken any other way that he chose. If we go back and look in the different ways that God spoke in the Old Testament. He spoke through prophets. He spoke through a burning bush. He spoke through a donkey one time. And this time he spoke through dreams. And this is going to be, as we'll see, a, a theme of the importance of dreams in the life of Joseph as God works his sovereignty in and through Joseph's suffering. And so God gave dreams to Joseph. We see these two here in verse 37 where there's the dream of the sheaves that they're going to, uh, all the other sheaves are going to bow down and submit themselves to Joseph's sheaf. And then he has another dream of the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him. And somewhere between chapter 37 and chapter 50, there's this theme of God's goodness and God's favor that is woven all throughout this text. Because we, we started last week in chapter 50 where he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's not just theoretical. He's talking about when you stripped me and threw me in a pit and broke our father's heart and lied to him and then sold me into slavery and all, the, all these things that happened. Joseph has the benefit of connecting these two things, of looking at the dreams that were given to him in chapter 37 and what 20-ish years later came to fruition in chapter 45 through 50 of the book of Genesis. We see where all these things come to fulfillment he can say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's easier to say that from Pharaoh's house than Potiphar's jail. If we listen more to emotion rather than truth. Because what we're not told through the book of, through the latter part of the book of Genesis, what we're not told through this narrative is that this, very often we'll see repeated phrases in Scripture. We don't see that in this one where Joseph took heart because of the dreams that God had given him. When he was in the pit, Joseph took heart because of the dreams God had given him. When he was on his way to Egypt, that trip took a minute. He had some time to think about this stuff. But Joseph took heart because of the dreams God had given him. When he was in Potiphar's house, but Joseph took heart. We don't have that repetitious phrase. We don't have it there. It's not there. So I, I would love to be able to ask the question of Joseph, then how in the process where all of these things are working out, because you've heard the phrase that years go by quickly, but days take a long time. It's easy for us to sit down and read these 13 chapters very quickly and realize that took, when you get to the place where they're two years into the season of famine, that's 22 years from the time they threw him in the pit. It takes a minute. So while he's enduring all of these trials, 
Is, is he leaning back on, I know that times seem hard right now, but God gave me these dreams. I know that times seem difficult right now, but I'm resting in the fact that God gave me these dreams. I know that my, the, the reality of my context right now seems very different than what I feel like I've been promised, but God gave me these dreams. We don't have that repetitious phrase. We'd have to argue that from a position of absence, and that's a, that's a pretty dangerous way to approach the text. We approach the text by what is in the text. But what we have is in chapter 39 where the Bible says that God was with Joseph. God favored him. And we see chapter 39 bookended with those things. That he's, God is with Joseph in Potiphar's house and, and he favors him and Potiphar's house uh, is blessed because of Joseph's presence there. And then the false accusation comes. He ends up in prison and, and things are entrusted to him in prison because God was with him and God favored him. So Joseph, in the midst of these sufferings, has these reminders that God is indeed at work and God is indeed with him. Not just rooted in what he's been told in chapter 37, but in the continual way that God expresses his character and his faithfulness, even in the midst of trial and suffering. So God gave Joseph these dreams. And so as we think about the processes that are at work in his life and what enabled him to endure and come out on the other end of these experiences with the, the, the position, with the confidence saying, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We, we only make the argument from what's in the text that God has spoken to him in dreams and God has continued to work in and through his life. And God gave him favor and God was with him. God worked in and through circumstances to bring about his purpose and his glory. In the midst of difficulty. And that's where I want us to, to, to use this narrative in, in Genesis as a springboard, if you will, into ways for us as New Testament followers of Jesus. Things that we can rest in with more confidence because of the certainty of God's word. Have you ever had a dream? None of you? Okay, well, that's wonderful. My dreams are weird. I can almost tell you what I'm going to dream when I'm going to dream them. If I am uh, in, in, in a very busy season where there's a lot of things going on and I begin to feel like I don't have control, I tend to dream that my teeth are falling out. There's no blank for that. That's just for your edification. I tend to sometimes dream that I'm falling. Not like out of an airplane, just like tripping and falling. And I tend to jerk like that when I do, and I'll wake myself up and hope I don't hit Amy. I've never dreamed about 
sheaves bowing. Because I, I don't have to worry as God speaking to me through this particular dream. I have the text of the scripture. People say, well, sometimes you dream differently because based on what you eat before you go to bed. God spoke through dreams in the Old Testament. He also spoke through burning bushes and donkeys. In the midst of trial, difficulty, I don't have to go to bed hoping that I'm going to have a dream in which God speaks to me. I have his word in the indwelling of the Spirit. So while God gave dreams to Joseph, we live in the truth that we can rest in the reality that God has made promises to us. And often when we wrestle with trial and struggle and difficulty, our feelings and emotions want to speak louder than truth. But we must rest in truth, not in the, the, the shifting tide of our emotion. It doesn't mean we don't have them. It doesn't mean we need to ignore them. When we are enduring trial, we can be sad, we can be frustrated, we can be hurt, we can be all those things, but those things, our emotions, are like water. They will often seek the path of least resistance. And whatever we can grab onto that might soothe that emotion for a moment, that will, our emotions will often strive to scream louder than the, the proclamation of truth. Paul writes it in Ephesians chapter 4 excuse me, in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in, in verse nine, 8 or 9, he says, whatever is true. Actually, go there. Go look in Philippians chapter 4. Because he gives us a good list. I hate to interrupt Paul in the middle of a thought, so I'm going to go back and, and give a little bit of previous verses. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer, by supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence or anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. If we break that list down, we have the, the exhortation from Paul, whatever is true, let your mind dwell on these things. Very often when we're in the midst of trial, our mind will dwell on what? The trial, the difficulty, the circumstance, the struggle. Paul says, let your mind dwell on these things, whatever is true. Well, what is true? What are some things that are true, promises that God has made that could be especially comforting to us when we're in the midst of trial? when we're in the midst of difficulty, when we're in the, the, the throes of suffering. 
Well, this is not an exhaustive list, but I do want to go back and look at a few that we get from a couple places in Scripture. And so I want to invite you to open your Bible to the book of John, chapter 14. When there are some other guys who are about to go through some trial. John chapter 14, the context here is Jesus is with his disciples sharing Passover together as he is about to go to the cross. He's going to tell them that he's going away from them, but it's to their benefit that he goes away because if he goes away, then the Father will send the helper, the one who will come. The latter part of chapter 13 Jesus has already told Peter that he's going to deny him. You can see the, the look on their face, faces. And in chapter 14, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Scholars say that there are 365 different times in the scripture that there's the exhortation to not be troubled or to not fear. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Now I want to interrupt Jesus for just a moment. I realize how rude that is, but God promises his presence. God promises his presence. In the Old Testament, God gave his presence with his people. Cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. New Testament, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. His presence comes to the end of his earthly ministry. He's preparing to go. And tells his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. 
I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Presence. But in the meantime, between the the here and the then, Jesus tells his disciples it's to their and our benefit that he goes away. Because if he goes away, then the Father will send the helper. The paraclete. Do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abides in me and the Father abiding in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe on the count of the works themselves. But truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he shall also do. And greater works than these shall he do because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, and that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. And that is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you can know him because he abides with you and will be in you. While we endure trial, whatever trial it may be in this world, in this fallen world in which we live, while we eagerly await and anticipate the time when we, be, we will be with him, we have the one who is not merely with us, but rather in us, promises his presence If you jump ahead in the text, you're going to see in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2 when the ascension happens and then Pentecost happens and the Holy Spirit falls, Acts 1-8, that we'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. So we have his presence, but in the midst of his presence, we have his peace. We jump ahead a little bit in Jesus' conversation with the disciples in chapter 14. We come to verse 26 But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Jesus bookends this part of the conversation with that exhortation to let your heart not be troubled. The first part because he promises his presence. In the last part here, it's because he's given us his peace. It's not the absence of conflict, but it's calm in the midst of chaos. Not as the world gives, which is temporary, uncertain, very often rooted in circumstance, Jesus gives his peace that comes in and through the presence of the helper, the one who is in us. And not only the one who helps us, but the one who empowers us. We have his presence, we have his peace, we have his power. We see that, as I mentioned, it being lived out in the first two chapters of the book of Acts, where it begins 
and then the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of everything that happened from Acts until now and will continue. Power that comes in the abiding of the Holy Spirit. Go back to Philippians chapter 4. We'll pick up where we left off with Paul. Let your mind dwell on these things. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen to me, practice these things and the God of what? Peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, that you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. And in every circumstance, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. For I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Power that comes through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, his presence that brings his peace because of the enabling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. There may have been times where you or someone else was enduring trial and this phrase may have come up, may have arisen in conversation. I just don't think I can take it anymore. I can't do this. I just can't. That's not the proclamation of truth. That is the expression of emotion. When someone says, I just can't, they're not looking for an argument, they're not looking for a fight. They're expressing hurt, pain, exhaustion. And the delivering of a true reminder given in compassion might first come in a hug, in some presence of just sitting and listening. Because that person is not saying, please engage me in an argument. While that person is saying, please, brother or sister in Christ, bear my burdens with me which is what we're called to do in the New Testament, to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. To love God with all that we are, our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is like to love our neighbor as our self. See how all these things work together? Job's friends, we talked about it last week, did wonderfully until they started talking. But they brought accusation, not affirmation of the truth. So when our hurting brother and sister tell us, I, I just don't think I can do this anymore. A gentle, gracious reminder of truth that says, no, you can't. But he can. 
And you don't have to do it alone. Because you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so because of that, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. It doesn't mean it won't be, won't be difficult. It doesn't mean it'll be easy. But I can promise you won't be going through it alone. Because he is in you and not just with you, but in you. And you have a church family who is to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We are not designed to do, to, to do this alone. So while we suffer... While we endure trial, we do so in the context as followers of Jesus, as those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the helper who guides us into all truth. The presence of a loving father who hears the cries of our heart, who hears our hurt, who hears our frustration. And loves us and is with us and has given us his peace. He's given us his power. He's given us his people. Or there would have been another great blank right there. You might want to fill that in. And all of it is for purpose. We talked about this last week. That suffering is not always punitive, but it's always purposeful. And not only purposeful in one area of our personal life where he's working in our sanctification to make us more like Jesus. We talked about it in James chapter 1 last week. To know that whenever we encounter various trials, we can rest in the assurance that God is working to make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he's working for us in our personal sanctification, but also in the larger picture of the kingdom, just like in Joseph's life. While Joseph is sitting in Potiphar's prison, God is expressing his faithfulness to keep his covenant promise that was given to Abraham back in the first part of the book. So God is not only at work on the personal level, he's also at work on the kingdom level to accomplish his perfect will, which is ultimately his glory through the reconciling of all things unto himself. And he's with us. Because when you're in the midst of pain, you're not be, you may not be wondering about kingdom issues right then. You may just want be wondering, when is this going to be better? And I don't know. But I do know He's with us, and he's faithful. I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. The helper won't just merely be with us. He will be in us to empower us, to enable us, that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And that we can, indeed, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Not only we can, we must. And that invites us to live in community with one another. Because it's hard for people to carry a burden that they don't know about. And that doesn't mean we're going to 
invite everybody, come on up. Now, we're going to end the service by you telling everybody all your struggles. That's not what we're talking about. Because community may just be one or two people in your Sunday school class. Community may be one or two people in your small group. You keep hearing us talk about groups, 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 groups. We're not trying to give you one more thing to do. Trying to be the church. To love each other well. To fulfill the great commandment. To love God with everything that we are and that we do so in community with one another and to love one another as we love ourselves. And to be who he's called us to be. It's interesting that we're in this series of trial and suffering as we pray for parents and teachers and students to go back to school. Because some of those teachers and some of those students and some of those parents are engaged in difficult places with difficult parents and difficult students and difficult administrators and have the opportunity to be light in those places. We have the gift of bearing those burdens together, praying for one another, encouraging one another, all the more as we see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews says to spur one another on in love and good deeds. We do that in community with each other through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, through his presence with us. And so as we prepare to go this morning into our Bible study classes and the celebration of the day as we do lake baptisms this afternoon and celebrate professions of faith in Jesus as people obey Christ in the step of believers' baptism, we do these things together. We study together. We live together. We serve together. We celebrate together. Sometimes we suffer together through the commonality of Christ that makes us one in him. So let's pray together as we prepare to go this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to live life together. Thank you for the promise of your presence with us, that you never leave us, you do not abandon us. You are with us even to the end of the age. when we'll be united with you for eternity. But Lord, in the meantime, while we're here, we thank you that you abide in us through your Holy Spirit, that you guide us into all truth, that you enable us to do all things through your strength. Lord, I pray that you will build in this body of believers a true, authentic community where we love each other well, we care for one another, we We bear one another's burdens and thus please you in how we do that. And again, Lord, we thank you for carrying us through seasons of suffering as only you can. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. Praise you and we bless you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray together. Amen and amen.